There was uh, a guy found himself in the uh, a cubicle in the gents at Heathrow, and he suddenly heard a voice saying, hi there. He says, well, London gets a bit of a reputation for not being very friendly, so I wasn't expecting this, but I'd better play along. Hi there. How was the flight? Well, I've been on worse. What are you doing tonight? Well, I thought I'd just go and check in in my hotel, and I'd uh, perhaps go out for something to eat. I was wondering perhaps if you'd like to meet up for dinner. And at this point, the guy's getting a little bit worried. He says, well, I'm not actually sure I'm free, uh, but thanks anyway. And the next guy said, listen, love, I'm going to have to hang up because some idiot in the next cubicle keeps trying to talk to me. <laughs> now, sometimes when we're reading the New Testament, it can be like listening to one half of a conversation. We hear Paul, but with no idea necessarily what the Colossians had been asking, what Epaphras had told Paul to deal with when he brought news from this little church. Uh, we can only deduce it from what Paul is writing. And Christoph has introduced us to this letter and has pointed out some of the things that were probably going on in this church, this temptation to add something to the message that they'd received, to add a little bit of religious superstition or whatever, or a little bit from their pagan background into this new message that they'd heard about Jesus. And, and Paul's at pains to say, that's wrong. You can't do that. Jesus is enough. But one thing we can be certain of is that Paul wasn't writing to a bunch of theologians or university-educated philosophers. When Billy was reading that passage, perhaps you, like me, sometimes think of, of passages like that when Paul's in full flow as being a bit heady, a bit abstract, a bit cerebral. And you're thinking, well, the guys he was writing to were just ordinary first-century Christians. And although he's writing in a very um, theological way, he's making some very down-to-earth points. And this is important. This is theology for normal people. And in the passage this morning, there's really two main points that we've got to grasp. There's no one like Jesus, and there's nothing like the church. There's no one like Jesus, and there's nothing like the church. Paul gets into his stride in this passage. If you have it open before you and you look at it, he's, he's almost writing poetically. There's a rhythm. It's, it's like listening to a spoken word artist. And the main thing that Paul emphasizes is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. I remember in my early attempts as a, as a young adult trying to share my faith, some of my friends, college friends, or even before that, my school friends, would have said to me, show me your God. Where is He? And that's not the most sophisticated argument for atheism, but it's one that people still try to make. And of course, uh, uh, if, if we'd been able to pull God out of our pockets and show Him, He wouldn't be God. And this is a sort of criticism these early Christians would have faced from their pagan neighbors. And like the Jews before, one of the criticisms was, your God is invisible. We can't go to a temple and look at Him and see Him. So how can we know Him? 
Now, this phrase, the, the image of God, I'm sure is familiar. If you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, the creation story, it said that humanity is made in the image of God. That was the apex of God's creation, and He was made in the image of God. Now, a lot of people have been looking to see, well, what did that mean? What does it mean, the image? How can you have an image of God? And it meant a lot of things, but let me just mention two this morning. Firstly, it means that humanity was a perfect representation of God. Our ability to think, to communicate, to be creative, to love, even to form community. All of the things that make us uniquely human stem from what God Himself is like. And secondly, it was a sign of His authority and rule. We were placed over creation to be good stewards. Now, we all know that that went badly wrong, and Paul uses a deliberate phrase here to show how at one level Jesus is now representing a new humanity, a new Adam, as he, as he mentions in Romans, a, a new man who would live the perfect life that we were meant to live. So, the image of God, Jesus was first of all the perfect representation of God where we had failed. I wonder if you can tell me uh, this photograph that's coming up on the screens. I'm wondering if you can, anyone can tell me who this is meant to be. Anybody remember? Yeah, this is supposed to be Cristiano Ronaldo. It is the widely mocked statue of him in his home island of Madeira at the airport, and it was mocked so much it had to be taken down, and the guy had to have another go at it. This is not a perfect representation. But Paul says, Jesus is. Now, here's another picture. This is of the statue of Lenin being toppled in Kiev in the Ukraine after the revolution. I was in Riga in Latvia this week, and I asked about it, and they said, yes, in every Soviet city uh, before the revolution, there was a statue of Lenin placed to show that the rule and the authority of the Communist Party was active there. It's what all the ancient emperors and despots did. When they conquered a nation, they put up a statue of the conquering emperor. That signified who was in charge. So when Paul says that Jesus is the image of God, it means that where Jesus rules, God rules. Jesus came in the flesh to bring in a new kingdom. This is particularly important because Paul goes on to show how the authority of Jesus is exerted over all other kingdoms and powers and rulers and authorities. He hammers the points home in these three ways. He says that Jesus was before all things, over all things, and uniting all things. He was before all things, before all other gods and idols that are man-made, that owe their existence to the imagination of people. You can say that idol was created on this day and at this place. Jesus was before all of that. He was the firstborn. Now, that phrase doesn't mean that Jesus was born or created in His pre-existent state. It doesn't mean that He's just part of God's creation. The word firstborn is a, is, a, is a composite word in its own right that simply means inheritor, the eldest, the, the one who would have received all of the legacy. 
Basically, it says that Jesus has rightful ownership over all of creation. There's no one like Jesus. And therefore, He's over all other thrones and rulers, signifying rank, and all over power and over all authorities, signifying what comes from that rank. Nobody is above His authority. Nobody. Whether we're in or out of the EU, we're still under His authority. Whether we have a hard border, a soft border, or no border at all, we're still ruled not by Stormont or Dublin or Westminster or Brussels, but we're ruled by Him. He's over Trump and Putin, and every one of our rulers will pass, and every one of the empires will fall. And that is why we fail as a church if we marry our faith to one particular political outlook or expression. Or if we imagine that somehow when political decisions go against us, or even when they go against God, that somehow Jesus is no longer in charge. We fail as a church if we become despairing because of the political failures of human leaders. What did we expect? And if we forget the hope that we have because we follow the one who is before and over all of these other rulers. A bit of perspective to our political stalemates, I hope. There is no one like Jesus. And thirdly, Paul says, Jesus doesn't use His power destructively. He's not a megalomaniac. He uses His power for our good. He unites all things in heaven and on earth. He brings healing. He brings restoration. He brings completeness. He brings shalom. And He did that in the most amazing way possible, not through war or conquest like any other ruler, but through weakness and death, through the cross. Redemption wasn't an invasion from a foreign and hostile realm. It was God coming to rescue, to claim back His rightful possession. There's no one like Jesus. And then there's nothing like the church. The second paragraph from verse, 20, verse 21, he switches from Jesus to us. Now, he's already introduced the church in verse 18 as another thing that Jesus has authority over. He's the head that unites the church. He has supremacy over the church. And just as a little aside here, all of the red-letter days in church history center around this issue of who is Lord of the church. Whose church is it anyway? Does Jesus have the right to exercise authority in His own church? That question led to the Reformation, to the disruption in Scotland and in North America, to the founding even of Irish Presbyterianism, the need for checks and balances to human authority so that we, even with our best intentions, don't usurp the authority that Christ has over His own church. That's what all those big debates were about. Sometimes we may be tempted to talk about our church, and that can be good if it's a sense of identification with a community. But it can be bad if we think the church is here purely to satisfy our desires and our needs. From verse 21, Paul reminds the Colossians 
and us also, that something pretty unique and amazing has happened in the creation of the church. Three things that I think we might be likely to forget. It's so easy for those of us who maybe have been part of church from an early age to forget what a, a totally amazing phenomenon it is. We get so sucked in to what Eugene Peterson calls a functional view of the church. We think the church is about what we do, our organizations, our buildings, our internal politics, the type of music we like or we don't like, how long the sermons are, whether or not we should do this or that in our mission, minor things. Paul takes us back to first principles here. The church simply is. We are, as a community of believers, a supernatural phenomenon created not by us to meet our needs, but created by Christ to glorify Him. And what we do as a church simply confirms that reality or it betrays that reality. We're primarily a community of people bound, united by the blood of Christ shed on the cross as His body. That's, if you like, an existential reality. We can't stop being the church as long as we are in Him. All the other stuff that can distract us at times will either help us or hinder us in being what we are. It will either keep us healthy as a church or make us sick. But whatever happens, we are the church. That's why, to give a random example, a small group meeting underground in the Yemeni desert or in a Libyan basement or in a Chinese prison are supernaturally bound to us. They are our church brothers and sisters. And it's why a bells and whistles megachurch following a charismatic personality may be much less of a church or maybe not a church at all. Because our existence as a church doesn't depend on our size or our music or our personalities or our preaching, but on the extent to which we are in Christ. And this second paragraph gives us these three perspectives that we are likely to forget. First of all, the past perspective. Once you were. Once you were alienated, strangers, and crucial, absolutely crucial to this um, uh, cr cr crucial to this being part of the church, this supernatural community, is the recognition that we don't deserve to be part of it. That in the recent or not-so-recent past, there was something desperately and fundamentally wrong with us that it took God Himself to fix it. We might be tempted to think that our shortcomings are no big deal, but no, we weren't naturally good. We weren't basically okay. We were strangers to God. And because we were rejecting Him, Paul uses a very strong term here that I guess may have shocked a lot of listeners at the time and may have shocked a lot of us. And that is, he refers to our behavior as evil. But the reason that might shock us is that we have coped of a coping mechanism to deal with our own failures, whereby we redefine the word evil. We redefine it particularly for heinous sins like child molesting or terrorism or wife-beating or whatever. 
we externalize it. But the reality of our predicament of our sin is that it was never no big deal. It cost the blood of Christ. The reality is that anything that minimizes or plays down or justifies our own pride and greed and selfishness or judgmentalism is in the same category as any evil behavior. It's the root cause from which all those other evil fact, uh, acts flow. And that's why the text says we were enemies in our minds. We had rationalized away our sin. We had convinced ourselves that basically we didn't need God, that we'd be okay. And all of us, without exception, though, Paul says, we're strangers to God's grace. And you see, that's why arrogance or self-righteousness among Christians is so detestable. Because we should all know that naturally we are all strangers to God. I have preached in churches where I was told not to tell the congregation they were sinners. I have talked to religious people who were shocked that I thought of myself as a sinner. I'm probably more shocked that I thought of them as sinners. But the New Testament is quite clear. We were alienated, enemies. Here's a diagram which I've always found helpful. The first uh, line at the top is, if you like, our awareness of God's holiness. And the line at the bottom is our awareness of our own sinfulness. Now, if you have a small view of your own sinfulness, that basically you're not that bad, and if you have a small view of God's holiness, that sure, He'll accept us anyway, the cross has very little significance for you. It's very small. The cross that bridges the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness, that cross becomes bigger and stronger and more important to us the more we understand our own sinfulness and the more we understand God's holiness. And contrary, counterintuitively almost, rather than thinking that the more that you get on in this Christian life, the higher up you go and the less sinful you are, if you look at the New Testament, what becomes abundantly clear is that the longer we go on in the Christian life, the more we are aware of our own sin because the more we are aware of God's holiness. But the good news is that there is something that bridges that gap. And it is when we understand both of that that the cross assumes its proper significance in our life. A small view of our own sin and a small view of God's holiness means a small view of God. So recognizing the extent of our own sin isn't wallowing in self-pity. It's glorifying in the cross. That's the past perspective. Then there's the present perspective understanding what we are. We've been redeemed, and we've been reconciled to God. So, this hope, this confidence isn't an arrogance. It's not based on what we have done, but what God has done. In fact, the best explanation of what has happened here doesn't come primarily from today's passage. It actually comes from the previous section that we looked at last week. I know this has been a tense enough few weeks for some of you with the AQE results. From an early age, we're introduced to the concept of qualification. In my generation, the AQE was actually called 
the quality. Anybody else here do the quality? From that early age, we're told whether we qualify or don't qualify. Carries on through life, through college and career. Do we meet the essential criteria to qualify for this job we're applying for? In sport, do our times or our results qualify us for the regional or national championships or the World Cup? I've been dealing with visa offices recently for international students. Do they qualify to come here? Will others qualify for citizenship if they stay? Do we qualify or don't we? And spiritually, how many times pastorally have I had conversations with people who struggle because they don't feel they are good enough to be a Christian? They think they don't qualify. Well, what did we read last week in verse 12? Giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light, for He has rescued us. Whatever you think about yourself, however insignificant you think your actions are or your life may be, however badly you compare yourself to other people, all of that is of no consequence because you know what? In God's eyes, you qualify. You qualify. When you understand your need and the cross and what God has done, you're released, you're freed from any futile attempt to qualify yourself for the kingdom. You already have citizenship. You are part of His body, the church. And what's more, He says something else. And when I first read this, I thought at this stage He moved on to the future perspective. He says that we're reconciled to be presented holy and without blemish and free from accusation. And at first I thought that was Paul looking forward to some day in the future, you know, when we're perfect and, you know, when we get to heaven on the last day, Jesus will prevent, present us, you know, holy and without blemish. But that's actually not how I think it should be read. He's now still in the present, and he's talking about part of who we are now. Because of Christ's work, you are holy. You are blameless because you are in Him, and He's the blameless one. God looks at you and sees you as you really are through the filter of Jesus, and He has taken the blame. And this completely changes who the real you is. The real you is no longer the insecure person, frustrated with your own shortcomings, struggling to be good enough, still sinning. The real you in Christ is holy, blameless, so that now, today, you are free from accusation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's why the gospel is good news. Yes, we will sin, but that sin has been dealt with. This gospel that Paul refers to in verse 23, that's bearing fruit all over the world, that I see it in my work in Europe and around the world, students coming to understand this amazing message. And is it any wonder this is good news? There's no one like Jesus, and there's nothing like the church He has created. And then finally, there is a little bit about the future perspective. Understanding where we're going and what is still required of us. Sort of a paradox here. Paul says that all this is true of us. 
All this gospel that I've been talking about, it's true of us if we continue. So there's a dynamic quality. If we move on, if we live in this reality day by day, so there's a forward trajectory. And yet he also says that to do that, we have to stand firm and don't move away from the hope that is ours. Continue, move on, stand firm. Don't move from the hope. Interesting. I spend a fair bit of time in airports, and I think the best analogy here is the moving walkway. You know if you're flying Ryanair and it docks at Heathrow or Dublin, usually at gate 75Z, and you have half a marathon to walk to get to the exit, you're helped by these moving walkways. You have to stand firm on them, yep, but as you do, you move forward. As Christians, as the church, we stand firm on the hope of the gospel, but we move forward. Standing still is not an option. As a congregation, how do we visibly demonstrate who we are as a church? We're facing big decisions in the months ahead, and maybe because it's me preaching this morning and not Christoph or one of the elders, I might feel a little freer in talking about this just as a, a congregational member. But whatever we choose to do with the physical plant of this place, we need to at least remember one thing. Standing still is not an option. Whatever decisions we make, the motivation behind them should be, how will this help us stand firm while not standing still? We've been at capacity for a while now. It's been standing room only on some cases there's been no room for other people, new people, to come in. And maybe if you're new to the congregation and you've had to stand, I apologize for that. Is that right? Is that good? So whatever happens, whether renovation or demol demolition, whether extension or multiplication, whether parallel churches or plants, it doesn't matter what. But what does matter is that we don't stand still. As individual disciples, also, we can't stagnate. These promises are here for us if we continue. We must stand firm and move on. I was ordained 20 years ago, just before Christmas. And in that time, I have seen people fail to continue. People from my youth group, peers, close friends, church interns, people I worshipped with here at Kirkpatrick, theological students, church staff, directors of missions, ministers, all drift away, all for different reasons. So let's not underestimate the power of apathy or what Jesus calls in His parable the deceitfulness of wealth and the cares of this life. Let's not underestimate the power of that to suck the hope out of us. In a church this size, at any given point, statistics would seem to indicate 
that there will be a proportion of those who are worshiping here this morning and who are keenly following who will not be doing so in 20 years' time. Reflect on that. Let it sink in. I pray it won't be the case with this morning's congregation. I pray it won't be. Because you know what? Our God is bigger than statistics. The Holy Spirit doesn't confine Himself to cultural trends. The Holy Spirit brings revival. The Holy Spirit enables us to persevere as we hold on to the hope that is ours. So let's press on. Press on. I have a spot of Achilles tendonitis at the minute, which was not helped this week in Seafall Airport in Amsterdam, where I approached one of those moving walkways. And I propelled myself onto it with my weaker foot, preparing to gently follow it with the other one, except there was a problem. It wasn't moving. I don't recommend walking quickly towards one of these, planting your foot onto the rubber only for it to unexpectedly stick. Painful. Standing still, you see, is never an option. It will kill your spiritual fervor. It will rob you of your joy. It will rob you of your peace. In the name of Christ, who has qualified you for His kingdom, through no merit of your own, let us continue in our faith, established and firm. You're qualified. You have nothing more to prove. So stand firm and move on. Let's pray.